Bibles, if you would turn to John chapter 10. We're continuing our series on You Asked For It. And today, we are looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture. We're looking at the title of The Good Shepherd Saves Not Some of His Sheep, but All of His Sheep. So if you found your place, Genesis chapter, or Genesis, of course I have it. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. And there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for a blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, O God, that you would give us understanding and help us to apply it in our lives by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The question that was presented to me for the You Asked For It series, this question this week, was this. In light of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, how can Jesus be both Savior of all people and especially of those who believe? Does this not imply an unlimited atonement? Now, this question here, with that phrase, unlimited atonement, it deals with one of the most emotional, controversial, glorious, 
and important doctrines in all the Bible. The atonement of Christ. The atonement. Christ, the eternal Son of God, died an atoning sacrifice on the cross in the place of sinners to pay the penalty for sins to save all who believe by grace alone. The controversy is this. Well, there's a lot of controversy just in what I just stated there. But the main controversy amongst Bible-believing evangelicals is this. Some say that the atonement is unlimited. Christ died for every single person, and some will say, whoever has and ever will live. And others say that Christ died only for believers, only for his sheep, only for his people, only for his church. Now, this question gets at this thing that we call the five points of Calvinism. Calvinism, named for the Protestant reformer John Calvin. It's important to understand that John Calvin didn't come up with five points, the five points of Calvinism. These are points that emerged later in church history as the Reformed Church grew, spread into Europe, spread into the Netherlands, and then there was a group of believers. They called themselves Arminians because they followed a teacher, a theologian named Jacobus Arminius. And the Arminians, they, they put forward five articles of remonstrance, five articles of objections against the doctrine of the Reformed Church. And then the Reformed Church met together at the Synod of Dort, not Dork, Dort. <laughs> the Synod of Dort, very important to get that right. And out of the Synod of Dort came the response of the Reformed Church to those five articles of remonstrance. And then somewhere along the line, those five responses, somebody along the line developed, put them into a nice handy little acronym, TULIP, which I have on the screen there. Now, it's a catchy acronym. The problem is, is that it's given to a lot of misunderstanding. So, for example, when we say total depravity, that doesn't mean that man is as evil as he could possibly be. Rather, that his total being, his mind, his emotions, his will, has been entirely corrupted by sin so that man is unwilling and unable to respond savingly to the gospel because he is enslaved to sin. He is dead in his trespasses and sin. Another confusing term here is the term irresistible grace. That's not teaching that man never resists God's grace. In fact, it teaches that all man does in his fallen nature apart from Christ, all he can do is resist grace. Unless, unless God raises that one who's spiritually dead to spiritual life. And the moment that God determines to raise someone who is spiritually dead to spiritual life, the moment that God determines to do that, he never fails to bring it to pass. He never fails to raise that spiritually dead sinner to spiritual life at the moment he chooses to do that. And so we speak of, a, of an efficacious grace, of a conquering grace, a grace that conquers my, my sinful heart and enables me to do what I previously was unable and unwilling to do, namely to rest upon and receive Christ 
as Lord and Savior because my stony heart has been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. And then we see limited atonement. Probably the most misunderstood and definitely the most controversial of these points because it sounds as if there's a deficiency in the work of Christ, a deficiency in its value. But that's not what the Reformed Church teaches. The Reformed Church teaches that the value of Christ's death, the worth of Christ's death is infinite in value. It's sufficient to save the entire world, every person who's ever existed. And it teaches this, that it is unlimited in true power because it teaches that every single person for whom Christ died not might be saved, but shall be saved through the cross alone, through the perfect work of Christ alone. And so the Reformed limit its scope. Christ died for his sheep only, but it's unlimited in its power. All the sheep shall be saved. The non-reformed have an unlimited scope. It's for everyone, but it's limited in power. The cross made salvation possible for all, but listen, not actual for anyone unless they believe. The problem is no one can believe unless the Spirit opens their eyes. And the other part we need to understand is that everyone if you're not a universalist, someone who believes that every single person who ever has or ever will live will go to heaven, that's a universalist. If you're not a universalist, you limit the atonement in some way. You either limit its scope or its effectiveness. The reformed limit the scope, but have an unlimited effectiveness, a power in the atonement. Now, as I go to this, so there's all, it's, it's just a question of how is the atonement limited by Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Now, as I get into this, I want to say something here as a point of introduction, and that is this, because this is a controversial topic. And I want to say that I have a deep respect for my evangelical brothers and sisters who disagree. I understand that these are hard. This may be the first time some of you have ever heard these things. I understand it's, it's, this can be difficult. I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for people who disagree. Uh, this is a very important issue, but it's not an issue that, 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 de that determines whether or not you're a, a Christian. And so I want you to know this sermon isn't an attack on you. And I want to do my best to to be as, the word is, ironic as I possibly can in sharing this. Now, you know me, I'll probably get a little passionate <laughs> somewhere in there, but please don't mistake that as I'm railing against those who disagree. I'm just excited about what Christ has done and the power of the cross. And I can relate to not agreeing with these things because there was a time when I did not agree with any of these points. <laughs> Very opposed to them until... Well, it's a long story. Maybe I'll share it at some time. But I understand. So I just ask for your patience that you would just consider what I have to say. So, for whom did Christ die? This is the question. This passage this morning is a 
towering text that speaks to the identity of Christ as God in the flesh and what flows out of who he is, out of his identity, is the mission for which he came. And the mission for which he came was to save his sheep, which his father gave him from all eternity and no one else. And so the main idea that we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus, the good shepherd, died on the cross to save all of his sheep, not the goats. And so the first point, Jesus, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. Verse 14, we see, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now this I am statement is one of seven I am statements that Jesus uh, presents here in John's gospel. And what Jesus is doing is, it's very important, he is assigning himself to himself the divine name. We recall Moses standing before the burning bush, who shall I say set me? And the voice that comes back from the eternal God is, I am who I am. This is the covenant name, the personal name of God. And now Jesus is saying, in effect, over and over, that's me. It gets even more clear in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus is saying, that's me. And all the Jews there would have made, they would have connected the dots to understand what Jesus was saying, which is why they wanted to stone him at the end of this passage. And then he assigns to himself another powerful image, image for God, and that is the good shepherd. Not a good shepherd, but the good shepherd. Now, the leaders in Israel, kings and the religious leaders, they were referred to as shepherds. Moses was referred to as a shepherd. David was referred to as a shepherd. But God alone was the shepherd of Israel. And so, Jesus makes a powerful statement about his identity, doesn't he? He's saying that he is the eternal divine son. He is the Christ. He is God's anointed king. He is the second person of the Trinity by whom and through whom all things were created. And he is the true shepherd of Israel. And because he's the good sheep or the good shepherd, he owns the sheep. He owns them. And because he owns them, he says, I know my own, and my own know me. <clears throat> now, this knowledge isn't just knowledge of facts, right? Like, I know, we all know who the president is. I know President Biden, but I don't know President Biden personally, right? This is an intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge. It's so intimate, so relational, that in verse 29, Jesus says, he compares it to the, to the relationship that he has with him and his father. In verse 15. And the question is, how does Jesus know them? When did he begin to know them? Verse 29 <clears throat> says, my father who has given them to me. The father gave these sheep to Jesus. Now, this is in the perfect tense for you Greek scholars out there. A completed action with continuing results. When did this completed action happen in the past? And it has continuing effects down through, as we know, through eternity. When did the Father give these sheep to Jesus? Some might say, well, when a person believes, that's when the Father gives them to Jesus. 
But that's not what the text says. Verse 26, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, tell us already, are you the Messiah? I have told you. My works bear witness about me. You don't believe. Because. Here's why you don't believe. You are not among my sheep. If you were among my sheep, you would believe. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep come to me. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. And so we need to understand a person doesn't become a sheep by believing. They believe because they are one of the sheep. And coming to Jesus, that is believing in Jesus, is dependent upon being given to Jesus by the Father. And as John 6.37 says, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not might come to me, will come to me. Absolute certainty will come to Jesus. So when did the Father give the sheep to Jesus? Well, it takes us back to Ephesians chapter 1. This is a glorious passage. Basically, it's one long sentence in Greek, and Paul is just giving praise to God for his plan of redemption that it was initiated before time and then worked out in time and will last throughout all time. And he begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. What is that that is ours in Christ? Well, we could talk about election. We could talk about the calling, the effectual call, the fact that we have faith and repentance, which are gifts given to us by God. And because of that, we, have, we are justified now. We are declared right before God and forgiven of all of our sins and righteous in Christ's sight because the perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited to our account. And we've, we've, been, we've received the spirit of adoption now. We're, we were enemies of God, but now we're God's children. And the spiritual blessing of, of sanctification, now Christ is at work in us. The power of sin has been forever broken in our lives. And he's at work in us now by the Spirit and by his grace to conform us into the image of Christ. And then we see a spiritual blessing of, of preservation. Christ preserves his sheep. And then glorification on the day when Christ returns, where we will be raised bodily and receive glorified bodies. And he'll wipe away every tear. No more suffering. No more death. No more pain a whole new creation. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then, how does that come to us? Verses 4 through 14, it shows how all that comes about. Verse 4, the Father chose us. Who's the us? It's every single believer from the beginning of time to the end of time. His sheep. His church. His friends. He chose us where? In Christ. Union with Christ is the foundation of our salvation. Not any benefit that we have. The spiritual blessings themselves are not the foundation of our salvation. Christ is. We were chosen in Christ. The Father gives them to the Son when? 
before the foundation of the world. Obviously talking about divine election. Election is personal. He doesn't just elect a, an impersonal group, a corporate group. He elects persons. It is personal and it is unconditional. Unconditional. Chosen unto salvation, not because there was anything good in those who were chosen, not because God looked down a mythical uh, quarter of time and saw that John was going to be smart enough to respond savingly to the gospel. No, if God looked down a quarter of time, what he would see is rebel John, unable and unwilling, loving his sin, it would never come to Christ. No, he chooses us in Christ as an act of unspeakable grace, undeserved favor, hell-deserving sinners, a, a multitude, Revelation says, a great, Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one can number. It would have been incredibly gracious if God just chose one. And he didn't have to choose any. But he chose a great multitude of, of what? Hell-deserving sinners by his grace alone unto salvation. And verse 7, we see Christ would come to redeem those given to him by the Father. In verse 13, the Holy Spirit then, he would come to apply that perfect work to all those that were given to the Son before time began and seal them in Christ, guaranteeing their salvation. And so we see here will be called theologically the inner Trinitarian covenant of redemption. The Father chooses a people in Christ. The Son then comes and accomplishes their salvation perfectly on the, his perfect life and his perfect death and bodily resurrection from the dead. And then the Holy Spirit perfectly applies that perfect work which was decreed from before the foundation of the world to all those that were given to the Son. A perfect plan, perfect unity among the persons of the Trinity to redeem not all who would ever live, but a great multitude of hell-deserving sinners. I remember <clears throat> Ursa and I, we uh, celebrated our 27th year anniversary. That's amazing. And I have to say, <laughs> this is true, I'm not just saying this, she knows, it feels like 27 days. It's been great, 27 years. 27 years, but when we got married, we met, Ursula was a single mom. She had a five-year-old son, Michael. Still, we still do, he's not five anymore, he's 32. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when we got married, we gave ourselves to each other, and then Ursula gave me the son that she loved. He was given to me by his mom, my beloved, to love, to lead, to protect, to lay down my life for that little crumb snatcher with the big brown eyes. But not for every child on the planet. And my special love for my beloved was not to be given to any other woman. It's a special love for my wife and a special love for my son that isn't given to to everybody without exception. And it's the same with the Lord. The Lord loves his creation, 
but he has a special redemptive love that is fixed upon his people. Christ has a special love for his bride, the church. And the father loves his sheep, and he gave his sheep, the sheep that he loved to his beloved son, and the same way that the son loves the father so, the son loves all those given to him by the father, and he lays down his life for them. Which takes me to the second point. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life for and to save his sheep, not the goats. Verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep, period. Right? Period. Now, what comes into view here is the substitutionary nature of the atonement. Say that fast three times. Substitutionary nature of the atonement. What does that mean? It means that Christ died for, that is in the place of, people. Specifically, his sheep, those given to him by his father. Even though the sheep were chosen before time, in Christ, unto salvation, they weren't born saved. All of us who are now saved can say amen. <laughs> We were, Paul says, as, as, as David says in Psalm 51, we were conceived in sin. I was born in sin. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, even like the rest, a child of wrath. That's who we were. Hopeless, willing slaves to sin and death and Satan, unable and unwilling to break free from the chains that had us bound. In the dark and dreary dungeon of death and sin and Satan. And here's the thing. We loved it there. Jesus says they loved the darkness rather than the light. That was us. And so verses 17 through 18, the good shepherd lays down his life for them. And he takes it up again, speaking of his bodily resurrection to actually save them by his powerful, perfect work on their behalf. And so the father loves Jesus. He's well pleased with the son because the son comes. He humbles himself. He takes the form of a servant to go on this mission to save the sheep, to plumb the depths of humility and to bear the curse of God-forsakenness on the cross to redeem every last one of those sheep that were given to him by the Father, without fail. And so who did Jesus come to save? Every person, if they just accept him? God did his part, now it's up to man to do his part. Was the design of the atonement for Jesus to die for those not given to him by the Father? Well, what does the text say? Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. That's it. Now, we think about the cross. The cross comes in a a particular time in history when Jesus dies on the cross The cross, the work of the cross, it looks back in time to before 
Jesus was born, before he died on the cross, it looks back to all those people. It would have application to all those people back there. We think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. And then it looks forward. For all of us now, we look back to the cross. People before the cross were looking forward to the cross, but there was application. Now, the question is this. Did Jesus die for those who were already in hell? What about Pharaoh and the Egyptians? What about all the pagan people in the promised land that God told the Israelites to go and to destroy? Did Jesus lay down his life for those that didn't believe because they weren't his sheep in this passage? Did he die for Judas? Did he die for the other thief who blasphemed Jesus but then didn't repent? Die to save them with the intention of saving them. If we say no to any of those examples, then Jesus clearly didn't die for everyone, right? Now, someone might say, well, he died for everyone who would live after the cross. So did Jesus die for those that he knew would not be saved? Because before he came into the world, he knew from all eternity who would and who would not be saved. I'm going to die with the intention of saving you, knowing that you're never going to be saved. Was that Jesus' intention? Did he die for those not given to him by the Father? And if so... Doesn't that create a conflict among the persons of the Trinity? The Father gives this particular people to Jesus, and Jesus says, yep, I'm also going to try to save these people over here. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to try to apply that work of salvation to all these people over here. It creates a conflict amongst the persons of the Trinity. So are we going to argue that Jesus died as a substitute in the place of goats, with the intention of saving them, is the question. And this is where we see, we get really to the heart of the issue, the key point. If the atonement is a substitutionary atonement, that is, Jesus died for specific sinners to pay the penalty for all of their sins, past, present, and future, to include the sin of unbelief, then you cannot believe in an, in an unlimited atonement unless... You're a universalist. Because if Jesus died and really did pay for all of our sins to include the sin of unbelief, then I can never be lost. The most you could hold to is what's called a moral influence or governmental theory of the atonement. Jesus didn't die to pay the penalty for sins, but as an example of God's justice and love for people. One Arminian scholar puts it well, non-reformed. He says, quote, a spillover from Calvinism into Arminianism has occurred in recent decades. Arminians teach that what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty since no one would then ever go into eternal perdition. Exactly right. That's why he doesn't hold to a substitutionary atonement that Christ died for 
his people, paid the penalty for sins. You can't say that if you hold to an unlimited atonement. Jesus is clear, though. He died for his sheep to give them eternal life, and the only way that that could happen is if he died for sins, which takes us to the third point. Jesus, the good shepherd, perfectly saves all of his sheep. Jesus' death, as I said earlier, was sufficient to save every single person who ever has or ever will live, but it was specifically designed to save Christ's sheep. And not just the sheep of Israel, but Jesus makes clear, verse 16, he had other sheep, the Gentiles, that he, I'm going to try my best to bring them. No, I must bring Gentiles, that is, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, all over the world. And Jesus says, they will listen to his voice. There will be one flock, not two different peoples of God, one people of God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one flock. His, his work of atonement was designed to save them, and it will not fail. Jesus doesn't fail to save any one that he died for. All of Christ's sheep will be infallibly saved because he made an actual atonement whereby he actually, not potentially, saved us at the cross. And so we say that there is real saving power in the blood of Christ. There is power in the blood. It is by the blood of Christ alone that all of his sheep for whom he died will forever be given eternal life and be forever set free from spiritual bondage. That's why we say salvation is by Christ alone. Because everything that we have is due to his perfect work alone. It's not Jesus plus my works or Jesus plus my act of faith that makes his atonement effectual. His atonement is effectual in and of itself, and because of his atonement, he's now purchased me and everything I need to be saved. And so we see some of this spelled out in scriptures. Matthew 121, you should call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from, his, from their sins. He will save them. Who? His people. Acts 20, 28, the shepherd, he tells the elders of Ephesus, the shepherd, the church of God, which Christ purchased with his blood. He purchased it. Is it possible for Jesus not to receive what he purchased? Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, his bride. Romans 5, 9 through 10, for if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, we were reconciled, much more now that we are reconciled, we were reconciled in a moment of time, the Holy Spirit now applies that perfect work to us, gives us the gifts of saving faith and repentance, we trust in Christ, and now we experience that which was true of us in Christ from all eternity. You are reconciled, and we shall be saved by his life. Revelation 5, 9, by your blood, you ransom people from God, for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. 
He actually ransomed them. Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through his blood. Who is the we? It is the us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that multitude of sinners that were chosen in Christ. And because they were in Christ, they alone are redeemed. They are bought out of the slave market of sin by the price of Christ's blood, and he must get what he paid for. The purchase price Christ paid had nothing to do with our will. Nothing. You weren't redeemed because you believed in Christ. You believed in Christ because you were redeemed by the blood of Christ. All you have in Christ is pure gift, even your faith, because Jesus purchased you and every spiritual blessing related to the new covenant. His blood, he says, is the blood of the new covenant, where God says in Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you. Is there any sense that that could not possibly happen? That Jesus is going to somehow fail to do that? Perfect plan, perfect work, perfect application. He doesn't ask our permission. The power and effectiveness of his blood doesn't depend on our decision for Christ. His blood applied to us by his spirit is what makes our decision for him not only possible, but certain. And Christ gets what he paid for. You're probably thinking, man, my head is spinning. <laughs> Ursa and I were in the military for 20 years, and all that, almost that entire time, she's like, I want a pet. And the whole time, I was like, well, you know, honey, we, we're not settled. We're going to be moving around, so let's just wait after we retire. So we retired in 2005 from the, from the Air Force. Honey, can we get a pet? Now, you know, honey, we're not, still not settled yet. You know, we're going to be moving around. We're not sure what's going to happen. We, maybe when we get settled. And then we went to Italy. So, well, honey, we're going to Italy, so we're not going <laughs> to. Finally, finally, after 25 years, we bought a little kitten. Bella. There she is. <laughs> exactly. We bought Bella, and we got exactly what we paid for. A smushy-faced, adorable kitty cat. We made the payment, and we had to receive what we paid for, and that's what we got. <laughs> Pray for us. <laughs> but then... Jesus didn't purchase adorable sheep, but messy, stupid, smelly sheep. And don't think that's not you on the right or the left. That's us. And he gets everyone that he bought. For Jesus not to get what he paid for would be unjust, would it not? This is the true power in the blood. Everyone from whom Christ died, all those chosen in him, are redeemed in him and by him. Listen, without fail, Jesus is a perfect Savior. He didn't come to try to save. He came to actually save. Not if we let him, because none of us would. No, he seizes us by his grace. He perfectly accomplished our redemption. This is the awesome glory and power of the cross. 
It's not the place where Christ made people savable and then crossed his fingers in hope that someone might accept him. Einstein said that God doesn't play dice with the universe. And I think we can say God doesn't play dice with his plan of redemption. The cross wasn't a divine crapshoot. It was where Christ made a full, complete, all-sufficient, all-powerful, perfect sacrifice whereby he fully satisfied the wrath of God, took away the sins of his people, and purchased them and every benefit of their salvation to include faith that they would need to take hold of Christ. And so, as Greg Bonson says, it isn't the cross plus my converted heart that equals salvation. Rather, it is the cross that gives me a converted heart and therefore salvation. So Christ now saves perfectly, and it's by Christ alone. Christ alone. Not one precious blood of Christ's blood, drop of Christ's blood is shed in vain. And because of that, he says that his sheep will never perish. He is the good shepherd. No one can snatch them out of his hand. The reformed view, and I think is the biblical view, is that the cross in itself, in itself, saved a multitude of people, every last person that it was intended to save. Spurgeon puts it this way. The Arminian, the non-reformed, says Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by that. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. Did Christ die to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer, no. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you? You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody? We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. A couple of object objections here. <clears throat> Jesus died for the sheep and not the goats. What about 1 Timothy 4? How can Jesus be the savior of all people, especially believers? Well, because there's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one savior, and it's Christ. He's a, he's a savior, especially of those who believe, because by God's grace, he's brought us to saving faith in Christ, and now we experience that salvation personally. What about John 3.16? God so loved the world. What about this word world? Well, we need to remember that it's written with Jewish exclusivism in mind. The Jews couldn't understand how Gentiles could be saved. God's saving, redemptive purpose, purpose could be focused on anyone but Jews. And so over and over, the New Testament, no, it's the world. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Same thing, written to Jewish believers to show that Christ came not just for Jews, but for the whole world, people from all over the world. As he says in Revelation 5, every nation, tribe, tongue. What about the word all? Doesn't all mean all? Not all the time. <laughs> it 
Context determines this. Example, I joke around with Ursula all the time. Well, not all the time, not every second of the day. It's bad enough what I have to put up with. But if I did it every second of the day, forget it. Or I went to the Eagles game and Randall Cunningham, the Eagles-Cowboys game, and Randall Cunningham threw an, intercept, an interception that was run back for a touchdown by Darren Woodson. This is true. All the people in the stadium stood in silence. All the people? Well, not every single one of them. There were some ridiculous cowboy fans that were cheering. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing they survived. <laughs> Matthew 3, 5. Then, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out there. You mean every single person was going out to see Jesus? Well, not every single person. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, look, the whole world is going after Jesus. You mean every single person? No. Then there's the all and the many passages. Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be justified and make many to be counted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Matthew 26, 28. This is my... Blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Is this all without exception? No. Romans 8, 32. He did not spare his own son, but delivered himself up for us all. Who's the us all? He tells you in verse 33. God's elect. See, perfect plan, perfect redemption. As I bring this to a close, the Reformed believe, and I hope if you're not Reformed that you just consider this. Thank you for your patience. The Reformed believe that God implemented a perfect plan of redemption to save a multitude of hell-deserving sinners through the perfect work of an all-powerful Savior who perfectly accomplished, secured, and guaranteed the salvation of every person he came to save that was given to him by the Father. And all that Christ perfectly accomplished in his death and resurrection is then perfectly applied by the Holy Spirit to all those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, all to God's glory. Christ indeed is the Savior of all people. And so if you never have, turn to Christ today. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you are a believer, our Savior didn't just try to save us. He actually saved us. He bought us. He redeemed us at the cross, and then by his spirit he applied that work to you at some point in your life, sovereignly. Your salvation, my salvation, wasn't initiated by you or me. It wasn't secured by us. It wasn't won by us. It isn't kept by us. Our salvation was perfectly accomplished by an all-powerful Savior who never fails to save his sheep. There is power in the blood. The triune God of heaven and earth has you in his hands and he will never ever let you go 
He's had you in his hands from all eternity and will never let you go. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great salvation, Lord Jesus, that you perfectly accomplished on our behalf. Help us to understand it. Help us to grow in it. Help us not to be prideful and to be cruel or demean those who may disagree with us on this. We just thank you, Lord, for your grace and the blood of Christ by which we have been saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.